Hey, good morning. It's good to be here this morning. Um, it was one of those strange uh, moments years ago that I uh, remember to this day. I was sitting in an incredibly boring meeting um, with a group that I had been meeting with for about three years. Uh, and it was the kind of council that ran the Elizabeth Presbytery, um, which uh, uh, was part of our old denomination, the PCUSA, and, and really they were charged, we were charged with just kind of making sure that the, um, the machinery of the Presbytery and, and its responsibilities ran uh, well, and like I said, it was part of the old denomination we used to be part of, the PCUSA, which, by the way, the PCUSA, our denomination that we have been part of almost 300 years, um, was the denomination I met Jesus in, in a small little Presbyterian church in the outskirts of Minneapolis. Uh, my dad was a choir director. It was the denomination that I had been ordained in as a, I had been ordained an elder when I was 18. I turned 18 in the year 1972, long ago, far away, and up to that point, 18-year-olds couldn't vote, but in 72, we had the privilege of voting for Richard Nixon, I think it was, or whoever, and um, our little church decided that uh, if they can vote, maybe we should make one an elder, and they chose me, you know, so fond memories of the PCUSA, and back in the day it was, but um, even in that moment, in that meeting a number of years ago, it was just so clear that the PCUSA was going off the rails, which of course it did and does, and that's why we left, among other things. But anyway, um, I was sitting at this quintessential religious institutional meeting, which you have to laugh if you know anything about me. Um, just kind of out of my bailiwick. And we were talking about things like budgets and, and uh, property and ju judicial things. And the uh, chairwoman of the committee suddenly abruptly said, hey, Mike, isn't this your last meeting with us? Uh, and I nodded, yeah. And she goes, would you like to say a few words since your last time with us? And I go, sure. And so I told them that I appreciated the chance to get to meet them and I will miss them. I mean, I, I told them, like, our paths just wouldn't cross except for this committee, and I did enjoy my time with them, but I went on to tell them that I, to be honest, won't miss these meetings. And I went on to say, you know, after sitting here talking about the direction of the wider church with y'all for the past three years, uh, more than anything, I'm convinced that some of us speak German and some of us speak Swedish, and we will never understand each other. And the chairwoman looked at me, and then she looked down at her paper, and she said, thank you. Now, our next agenda item is, it was like that. Seems to me that the gulf between running the machinery and the mechanics of a religious institution and giving leadership to the body of Christ, the gulf between those two things couldn't be wider. And after about nearly 40 years into it, uh, I'm just more convinced of that than ever. You know what I mean? And it's a bit about that that I want to speak on this morning. 
that gulf is as wide as it possibly can be because on the one side you have this dead institution that's committed to maintaining and hanging on and there's and there's legit reasons for that you know and on the other side of the gulf you have a living body determined to advance and grow and stay dynamic in an ever-changing world and and that is what i find intriguing and challenging and fun about ministry i think especially youth ministry because the world the culture is changing like that as it is for us all not just teenagers but how do you bring christ into a world that's just ever changing well i don't think you do it by dead religious institutions by any means and so on the one side you have religion centered on maintenance empowered by humans and on the other side you have a a heartfelt spiritual connection and the word that i think captures that it's a word that i've tossed out to our students a lot it's actually a word that i've had reflected back to me before i even toss it out like so what's it like coming down here on a sunday night so what what's it like when you come down here even to half of our students who this is not their church home um the word they keep reflecting back to me, which is the word I would choose, is family. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's that that we use verbiage like brothers and sisters. I mean, we use family. We're not a Sunday morning club, you know? It's way deeper than that. And even for someone who's not part of us on a weekly basis, uh, gets that sense, this heartfelt spiritual connection centered on Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And I have to tell you, uh, Amy and I are a few weeks beyond 29 years serving in this church. I think that captures us. Now, there's no pride in that. It just is what it is. It just has seemed to us from the very beginning that this church, along with many others around, just doesn't have an interest or an appetite for running some dead religious institution. Like, who wants to do that? You wouldn't be here if that was us. And Amy and I would have been long gone. You know what I mean? Um, but from the very beginning, this church has been about Jesus and about ministry and stepping up into opportunities to advance that. Um, clearly, there's nothing worse than a dead institutional religious organization propped up with money and tradition. And by the way, I think money and tradition can prop things up for a while. Those are pretty good prop-ups, you know? Um, but at some point, it deteriorates and melts down. Like, like, nobody wants to be part of that for very long. And it would seem to me Jesus had no appetite for that, you know? These dead, lifeless institutions who at one point had meaning and focus and, and, and was about the Lord, but over time had really lost that. And it becomes something very, very different. Jesus, um, whenever he runs up against this kind of warped religious attitude, he just recoils. And I don't think anywhere is that more profoundly so than in the story I want us to read this morning. It is the familiar story of the time that he encountered the money changers and the animal sellers in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this familiar story is found in all four of the Gospels. Not every story about Jesus is found in all four of the Gospels. If you haven't ever, and today more than ever, you don't have to go out and write 
buy books. You can find it by a good Google search to find out the, the parallel Bible, the parallel stories of the Gospels. It's, very, it's a very interesting read. And how often Matthew, Mark, and Luke include it, and maybe John does in a different way. Case in point would be the Christmas story. Do a search this afternoon of who says what about the Christmas story and see if you can find it in John. And you won't find shepherds there, but you will find the Christmas story in chapter 1. So in the case of this story we're about to read, um, it's included in all four of the Gospels. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke put it at the end of their Gospels. Um, On Monday of Jesus' last week, of life on this planet on Monday. So this is a really, this, is a, this story's embedded in the, in the final days of Jesus' life. And I guarantee you, and you know this, that Jesus had well thought through and well planned out his last week of life. Je- Jesus was always in the moment, but he was also five steps ahead of everybody. He would have been a great chess player. I mean, I don't know much about chess, but I know that the greats aren't playing in the moment. Well, they're playing in the moment, but they're thinking about six steps ahead of you or maybe ten or I don't know how many, but you get the point. And that's Jesus. He's totally in charge, totally in command, living in the moment, looking you square in the eye, dealing with business in the moment, but he's got it, he's got it going on. And that's just his way about it. So he encounters this in, in, in the end of the story. But John, being John, um, doesn't put the story there. He puts it in chapter 2 at the beginning. Now, why did he do that? Did he make a mistake? No. You got to know about, like, how John dealt with his gospel. And he is determined to say it like it is and portray events as they happen. And he could do it well because he was who? He was Jesus' best friend, or so he claimed to be, and he kind of was. I mean, Jesus gave his responsibility of his mother over to John, so clearly they were tight. So he's telling it like it is, but he is determined to make some serious, important theological points early on in his gospel, and this was one. He didn't want to let you discover it at the end of his gospel, this important point out of this story. He wanted to stick it right in the beginning so that it would flavor your thought about as you read everything else about Jesus. John puts it at the beginning to make a theological point, and the theological point is this. It is that God's judgment is operative through the Messiah Jesus always, not just at the end. Was he dealing with God's judgment? From the very beginning, even when he was like talking through the Sermon on the Mount and everything that he did, he was... He was it was, it was to be flavored, according to John, by the fact that God's judgment is operated through Jesus. And the word that captures that there is authority, and we'll come back to that in a moment. So turn with me to uh, John chapter 2, verse 12, and we'll read a bit of this story. After this, he, Jesus, went down to Capernaum with his mom, his mother, his brothers, And his disciples. And there they stayed for a few days. So so you could imagine what that time was like. You know? Uh, Days before he would hang on a cross. That's exactly what you would do. You would retreat. You know what's coming. And you want to be with those closest 
to you to set your affairs in order between and to say what you want said without distraction. So that's what's going on. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. When the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now you can just picture the scene. The scene where Jesus, having just spent a few days uh, in just idyllic time with those he loved the most, he travels to Jerusalem for Passover, expecting to find a, a peaceful place to pray and be with the Lord. He found anything but. In order to get into the temple, he had to walk through this outer courtyard that was called, among other things, a Gentile porch. It was sort of a porch overhanging portico area where the Gentiles were allowed to be. In fact, encouraged to be. And not just any Gentiles, but what was optimal was, was that this would be a place of prayer for Gentiles that were intrigued about this Jewish God. Some of them were trying to latch on. Now, they were not allowed to go further only Jews were allowed there, but they were very much allowed and encouraged to be here. And this was supposed to be a place of prayer and solitude and quiet so they could listen in to what was going on inside the uh, temple. This was a special place. It was like a church in many ways or meant to be. And Jesus, uh, up against that, suddenly encounters this place of total chaos and, and, and he heard people yelling um, about inflated prices of animals. He heard money changers calling out and clanking their coins. He heard blaring of sheep and, and mooing of cows. And just all these noises were anything but quiet and a place of prayer. And to make it worse, <coughs> the people there were ripping people off. And start of Instead of charging like a legit two whatevers, they were charging 50 whatevers for their wares. And the exchange rate was the same way. Um, it wasn't so bad that they were selling animals and exchanging coins. That was actually a helpful service because these pilgrims had come from far away. They aren't going to be carrying animals and birds and everything with them. And they didn't have the right coins. So in and of itself, that service wasn't so bad but it was in the wrong place and they were doing it the wrong way because they were ripping people off. And so Jesus, encountering all that, in the house of God, he took action. He made a makeshift whip out of cords and with that, he just drove people out and the animals and knocked the tables over and the coins and the chaos and it was an incredible scene of which, even though that's such a familiar story, uh, this morning, 
I think it's good to ask ourselves, why did he do that? Like, doesn't that seem so out of character for Jesus? Think back on the, like, the top four or five stories that you just love so much about Jesus. It probably doesn't involve him whipping animals and people and yelling for people to get out of there. You know what I'm saying? So at first blush, it just seems a little bit out of character. I think there's a couple of reasons why he did what he did there. First, it's just face value. Like he was trying uh, to make this space conducive for people to pray. It was like he was going, shh, knock it off. It would be like you coming in here today ready to pray and to sing praise songs and be with the Lord and have communion, and I've got this place lit up for a junior high event. You know what I mean? Like you would walk in and go, uh, excuse me? Uh, this doesn't seem right. And, and that's what Jesus, I think it's at face value, he is trying, it just drove him crazy, but he just couldn't stand the fact that people were being prevented from spending time with the Heavenly Father. So at face value, but I think there was something else going on here, a secondary reason, which I think was ultimately really the primary reason. And it had to do, did you see, catch this phrase in the reading, with the Jews. Now, that phrase is code, not referring to the Jewish people, but to a certain group of people who were the main assistants of the high priests. These guys were Sadducean controllers of the temple, and here's the key word, revenues. They were the, they were the finance committee. Of They're the ones that had the problem with this. And go ahead and read all kinds of things into why they in particular came out with their guns blazing and fire in the eyes. These guys had allowed and probably promoted this scam. Um, these, these guys probably were not only getting the uh, ties and all of this money along with the priests and all the rest, but I bet you they were getting something on the side. I just, it just makes sense. And so here's their money. They're stepping over the coins, which would ultimately belong to them. And, and they had had enough, angry as hornets. And so they ask Jesus this question, verse 18. Take a look at this. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Now, I'm sure it was not a calm, controlled question like that. I bet you it was laced with profanity and just anger in their eyes and hatred and just being incensed at who is this guy disrupting what we've been doing and all the rest. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to all this? To which Jesus replies, in a sense, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And then what does he do? Do you catch it there in verse 19? He tells him a riddle. And the answer to this riddle just goes right over their heads. He goes, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Well, that, that made no sense to them whatsoever. It did to John retrospectively, and he puts a, a punctuation on this, but these religious leaders reply, verse 20, what are you talking about? It's taken us 46 years to build this building, this temple, and you say you're going to knock it down and build it up in three days? They were just, it just went right over their heads. 
to which John explains in 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus did this, it seems to me, to goad the temple hierarchy into a confrontation centered on the fact that things were about to change. Again, this was at the beginning of his last week on the planet. And Jesus was setting in motion some statements that he wanted reverberated throughout the next days and throughout all of human history. Look again at verse 18. The Jews question. Again, the religious leaders question. A key word here. Authority. Authority. Whose authority do these things lean on? I'm sure Jesus anticipated that question. That's the question he wanted. Again, he was thinking about four steps ahead. He wanted the question of who's in charge here, not just of this temple portico, but of, of, of everything. Who really has authority here? And he wanted that put on the table. And he set into motion so that it would. Authority. All four of the gospel accounts of this story include that word authority. That's a big deal. The word authority. And the, the religious leaders asked that question in verse 18 not to get an answer, but to make it, it was more of a statement than a question. We are in charge here. You are not. How dare you? Who are you? That's what verse 18 is really communicating. Who are you? How dare you? And so it's here Four days before Jesus would hang on a cross, that Jesus encounters the crux of the matter of why he had come to even do this battle in the first place. And it's centered around authority. And we wrestle with it to this very day, it seems to me. Now listen, whenever religious leaders think they have the ultimate authority when it comes to matters relating to God, relating to the church, relating to things of the Lord, whenever religious leaders think they speak for God and have him all figured out, if you ever get the hunch that you're in a setting where that's true, listen to me, run. Like, that is incredibly dangerous. When people, when lead, people put in leadership are like that, run, because you're on the road to disaster. Pastor, author James Fowler has written extensively on the dangers of religious tyrants. And he says that that leads to things that he's called isms. And I want to share a bit of his thought with you this morning. At the top of Fowler's list is absolutism, authoritarianism, activism, and I'd throw a fourth one in there, dogmatism. I, I've just always liked that word, dogmatism. Dogmatism is an arrogant assertion of opinions as truth. The tendency to lay down principles as incontrovertibly true without consideration of evidence or opinions of other. I knew a Christian musician back in the day that did a song that was about curbing your dogma if you're going to follow Jesus, having to do with humility. Fowler goes on to talk about absolutism, and I love this definition. Absolutism comes when any person or groups think they have determined the absolutes of God absolutely, 
and set about to impose them absolutely on others. That is super dangerous if you ever encounter someone like that. Or authoritarianism, of which he writes this, the bulk of mankind are followers who will follow a leader like sheep. There always have been and always will be some people, therefore, who set themselves up as leaders and authorities claiming to represent God and speak authoritatively for God. They have claimed to have a special in or a hotline with God or special visions about what you should do in relationship to him. Or activism, of which he writes, but when any person or group claim that they are directors of God's activity, that they have discerned what God wants you to do, how God wants you to act, you need to be aware. You need to be careful. Jesus, it seems to me, came to bring change to the world and to humanity. He came to bring life and to bring it abundantly. And dogmatic, absolute, authoritarian activists push back on that on him again and again. And again, it was those people that he had the, the most problem with and in many ways the only problem with were priests and ministers. And I got to tell you, the fact that Jesus had problem with ministers has scared me for 40 years. You know what I'm saying? Jesus pushed back even harder. And he does it in this uh, account. He does it again and again. And he does it big time in Matthew 23. If you haven't read through Matthew 23 in a while, do it this afternoon. Read through the four gospel accounts of this story and read through Matthew 23. He unloads both barrels in Matthew 23. It starts like this. Then Jesus said to the crowds and his disciples, the teachers of religious law and Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey what they tell you. What they tell you. But then he goes on. But don't follow their examples, for they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease their burden. Everything, everything, everything they do is for show. And he's just getting started there. He goes on for another near 30 verses, and it crescendos like this. This is towards the end of Matthew 23. Jesus says, snakes, son of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? <laughs> that's Jesus. You know what I mean? And he's directing it at ministers and priests and elders of the church. So what's the takeaway from this passage? Well, I think it's a mix of three things, to be honest with you. The first is this. If you're ever in a place of authority or influence in the church, be careful. Be careful. It can go to your head. Power always can go to your head. You and I were not created to handle power in big amounts that we never really earned. And it can cause humans to become dogmatic, absolute, authoritarian, activistic tyrants. And we know that through history, even in the church. And it would seem to me that the antidote for that is humility. Easy to talk about. It's an easy word to say. Humility. But we should all be on a journey towards that. Mother Teresa was on a journey towards that. And here's her blurb on it from a devotional I ran across recently. Humility is the mother of all virtues. Purity, charity, and obedience. It is in being humble that our love becomes real, devoted, and ardent. 
If you are humble, nothing will touch you, neither praise nor disgrace, because you know who you are. If you are blamed, you will not be discouraged. And then this, if you call, if they call you a saint, you will not put yourself on a pedestal. Humility is the key. If we're to stand before God and each other and lead well. But I believe there's also a place for good guardrails that help us from getting too much power in the first place. And the word for that is polity, which sounds incredibly boring, but I would encourage you to do some reading about what are the guardrails, what is the polity of our new denomination. And that's something that the folks that brought about our new denomination did a lot of thinking on theology and on polity. Good, smart church polity is way more than just rules. It's a freeing guide to make sure no priest, no pastor, no elder, no good old boys network goes places they have no business going with the power given to them. Good polity makes sure it's God who has his way with his church. And you can read more about that on ECO's website. Again, they've done such a good job unpacking that. Humility, smart church polity, along with a third thing. And this is found in verse uh, 17 of chapter 2. And it's a word I doubt you've used so far in 2019, the word zeal. Zeal. And it talks about how Jesus was zealous for things of the Father. Zeal is passion. It drives you forward. It's what gets you up in the morning. And here's the question related to your involvement here, if this is your home church, what are you zealous for? Is it the things of Christ here that he's doing and he wants to do further through you? This is an incredibly exciting time to be part of this church and to discern what Jesus would have for you to plug in and run with. May that zealousness, that passion be our way in the days ahead. And may it be what Jesus is zealous for. And may that zealousness, that passion, be marked by humility and governed by good polity. And in the end, may you experience something, you and me, um, that I think is caught well by a word that I just made up and I googled it and it doesn't exist. Zumility. Zumility. This powerful mix of zeal and humility marked by the things that drive the passion in the heart of Jesus. May we be zoomilitists in the days ahead. And through that, may his kingdom come here in exciting new ways. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your presence here with us. Holy Spirit, would you take us and march us into a future, into a world in need of hope. And you are that, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.